I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. songs for the 20th century that is the music of my guest today on the program chris stamey let me tell you a little bit about chris stamey now there's an old billy crystal joke that's one of my favorites and it's about a girl who's a teenager and she's a big paul mccartney fan and she says to somebody was paul mccartney ever in a band before wings i love that joke because it operates on like 10 different levels but the first three that come to mind are cultural ignorance youthful malaise and generational differences. And though I've always loved that joke, when I really think about it, I'm as guilty as the person in the joke of making a very similar mistake, if not a worse mistake. And that mistake involves Chris Stamey. When I was 17, I got into the album It's All Right. It's a Chris Stamey solo album, and I thought it was brilliant. The songs were catchy blasts of jangly pop, perfectly crafted, and they were the kind of songs you could not get out of your head and I just loved that album. I played it all the time on my radio show, especially the song of Time and All She Brings to Mind. Utter perfection. Now, you're probably wondering what this has to do with that joke. Well, I'll tell you. I had no idea that Chris Stamey had been in the DBs. Now, you're probably thinking, well, the DBs weren't as big as the Beatles. That's true. But unlike the person in the joke, I was a huge DBs fan. As a matter of fact, they were one of my favorite bands. How did I not know Chris Stamey was in that band? Well, I still don't know the answer to that. But I reverse engineered. I went back and I listened to the DBs with new ears. And I could hear Chris Stamey's big pop touches on those songs I loved so much. Back in 1987, if you asked me my two favorite albums, I would tell you Squeeze's Babylon and On and Chris Stamey's It's Alright. In my opinion, there was nobody crafting better pop songs then Squeeze and Chris Stamey. And I recognized at that point that though Difford and Tilbrook were a great songwriting team, Chris Stamey was a one-man pop army. And at the age of 17, I could recognize that Chris Stamey was a true songwriting craftsman. The Chapel Hill, North Carolina-born Chris Stamey has been one of my favorite musicians for over 30 years. Aside from the three albums he did with the DBs, he's got a pretty full CV. For example, he's played on albums by Sid Straw, Alex Chilton, and the Golden Palominos. At his modern recording studio in Chapel Hill, he's produced everyone from La Tigre to Whiskeytown. 
And he's collaborated with folks like Yola Tango, Kirk Ross, and his old pal from the DBs, Peter Holsapol. Yeah, Chris Stamey is a pretty busy guy. Not only that, but if you want to hear some of the best rock and roll stories of all time, you've got to read A Spy in the House of Loud, New York Songs and Stories. The book is Stamey's 2018 autobiography about his years in New York and beyond, and the tales he tells are legendary. He's got stories about television, R.E.M., Chris Bell, Alex Chilton, and a pivotal moment at Abbey Road Studios in London where he avoids talking to Paul McCartney, you know, that guy from Wings, and instead hits it off with George Martin. It's such a great book, and I was going to say it's one of the great rock and roll reads of all time, but you know what? Rock and roll whatever. It's just one of the great reads of all time. Okay, there's your crash course on Chris Stamey, and I haven't even gotten to his solo records yet, so let's do that right now. From 1982 to 2015, Chris Stamey put out six brilliant solo albums, but it's his new effort that might be his crown achievement. A 26-song double album, New Songs for the 20th Century, is a landmark effort. Written under the influence of Jerome Kern, Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, Richard Rogers, Henry Mancini, Irving Berlin, and Leonard Bernstein, the album captures the magic of those songwriters in lush, orchestral fashion. And Stamey brought his friends along to help him out. Guests on the album include Marshall Crenshaw, Don Dixon, Caitlin Carey of Whiskey Town, Faith Jones, Kirsten Lambert, Millie McGuire, Branford Marsalis, Bill Frizzell, Matt Douglas of the Mountain Goats, John Brown, Will Campbell, and Jim Crew. Needless to say, it is a staggering collection. New Songs for the 20th Century reveals that not only is Chris Stamey one of music's great craftsmen, he's one of its greatest composers. The album is rich and elegant, and it comes across with precision, grace, and a true love for the American songbook. All right, here's my chat with Chris Stamey. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. in your new project and uh <laughs> all i could think of was it's 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 marvelous but it's so herculean I, I was wondering what the what the genesis was where this idea came from and how long you were you were thinking about it before you broke ground well i mean i wrote the songs one by one so it wasn't quite as daunting for my end uh, i do think that putting uh 26 of them in uh one release is uh a little bit nuts, and if I was uh, advising myself, I might have told myself to think twice, but <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to do a shock and awe, and also as a composer, I, I, I like to push him off to college, so to speak, and that, that leaves room for me to be writing more. Um, when did I, I mean, I, I wrote a song called uh, What Is This Music That I Hear on Christmas Morning of 2015. So that was probably the first one of uh, the this latest group. So it's been a few years. And then mo most of these were, I think there were just a few written this year. So the bulk would have been uh, 2016, 2017, 2018. Have you always been a prolific songwriter? Well, it, 
mean, it depends on what my obligations are. Some years I've been producing so much and I haven't written very much at all. Um, but I, I specifically um, was very engaged by the language um, of these songs. So it was, uh, it compelled me. So you find that when you get into a groove, uh, you talk about the language, there's a sort of like an almost like a like a narrative feel that um, that you're in that space where the creation becomes a lot easier. Um, well, actually, what I meant by the language here was uh, uh, denser harmonic choices, chords with not just uh, root five, three. And then also uh, these songs have. It's not that they're wordier, but they're more syllables in those words, and so that's that's what I mean about that particular language. I see. Um, uh, four or five six note chords and three, four, five, six syllable words were the building blocks of a lot of these songs. And if you're playing with a, a rock band and it's really loud, there's sort of no point in that stuff. Um, as to your question about creativity in that way i i think that a lot of us who talk to folks like you after the fact are just kind of winging it because i actually think the time of creativity particularly for something as short as a song or as concise as a song is uh you're kind of elsewhere it's a little bit of a different kind of consciousness um which might be explained by the bicameral model, the right brain, left brain model. But basically, you you know, you're kind of gone and you come back and then people ask you questions about it and you're in a totally different frame of mind. So you make up these answers that are hopefully like the truth, but I'm not sure I have access to what is happening when I'm creating stuff. I totally get that. And I, I, I think I guess in many ways then to build on that, it's sort of like, um, do you find yourself being gone uh, more frequently in times of of feeling pro- you know particularly prolific? Um, because you're yeah, right. Like who knows what happens when when that spark hits? You, I'm a writer, and and I totally understand what you're saying. Where it's sort of like I can't explain that either. Um, you're writing fiction, or you mean I write poetry, and and, and oh and really? Ah, as well. okay, yeah, right. yeah, and like and for me, like a lot of my in my first book, my everything takes place in this kind of like mythic coastal city. And I don't always get access back to that city. Um, but when I do, I can't explain why I do or what happens when I get there. Cause it does feel kind of magical, whether or not the work is any good. That's, you know, I have no idea, but, but it feels magical and I can't explain, you know, like I said, the access point, uh, who, who can explain that. But um, I do notice that there are times where I get access more frequently than other times. And, um, you know, I, I guess I guess when it's all said and done, you never know when you're going to get access again. Um, I mean, I, th- I think it it's elusive, but not um, totally mysterious. I mean, I think you can. Uh, 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 let's see. I, I wrote one record, a record called Lovesick Blues, where I just found this little room that sounded a particular way and looked a particular way, and I would just go in there and sit in that room and when the, the morning light hit a certain point, it would kind of trigger those songs. And for this record, I, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I sat around and thought about the ocean a lot and that seemed to help. Um, and I mean, that's, I'm not making that up. Um, but you know, a lot of it for a musician is, uh, you know, it's like for a painter, the light might hit in a certain way at a certain time of day. 
and and for me having a piano again under my fingers was really um sonically engaging i mean you uh you know i can kind of, a musician can kind of think of chord changes in their head and they don't have to have an instrument there but i remember reading about Stravinsky saying how excited he was to find this particular E major chord. I think it was an E major chord. And the person he was talking to said, what do you mean? It's an E major chord, but it was a particular voicing on the piano. And just being able to use all 10 fingers to hear sounds sparked me for this group more than the limited palette of the guitar. How did that... I- piano find its way back into your life oh well i'm i'm mythologizing it it's a bit of a mythology um process i guess i mean it was my family piano and my dad died and i inherited it um but it was um it, it it's a real musical instrument but it was also like uh you know that fuzzy teddy bear you've had in the corner when you were two right you know i think it brought some childhood memories back it also literally contained a lot of sheet music. You know, I was telling you, I came to your work in 87 with, with the It's All Right record, and I was 17, and I, I was marveling then, even, you know, you always struck me as a, as a craftsman. Did you, did you think, how did you regard yourself musically um, in terms of your self-identification as a musician? Did you always think of yourself as a, as a craftsman, or how did you regard yourself early on? Um, well, around that time, I just thought I was uh, lucky, <laughs> I think. It was amazing to be making a record with my name on it and doing the stuff. And, and um, yeah, you know, I, I always thought of myself as a composer. Um, but once I became a teenager, I mean, at a young age, um, I was writing this stuff. But when I became a teenager, you know, everybody was in bands and... Um, I became, you know, more of a rocker at that point. Um, I mean, I, I grew up on classical music and um, always wrote what I called compositions and then went to university for classical composition. Um, I, I'm not sure how I thought of myself. I, I think during those the time of the It's All Right record, um, I, I was a little, you know, I'd, I'd played with Alex Chilton a little bit and there was a certain sound there. Um that was uh, full of exhilaration and depression that I really liked. And I'd been to see a lot of the shows that that band television played, and that was in there too. So I think for the It's All Right record, um, I I felt like those were flags to wave, you know. Um, This this title song, uh, It's All Right, um, had some of both those flavors in there, and I guess Alex was singing on the record. but you know, it, it's hard hard to say where a, a muse will lead. That was just that at that time. Right. I must have I must have played of time and all she brings to mind about nine thousand times on my radio show. Um, oh, that's nice. You know that yeah that song. Um, I I always like the words and the music of that. And the producer uh, Scott Litt did a really cool job on it. But th- there's a simpler song there. You know, it's a little bit bombastic in that recording. I, if you just play the chords uh, and sing it. It's, uh, I think I thought it was a Dylan-ish song at that time, and then it got a little bit of the 80s flavor in it. Um, I'm glad you like it. Oh, I love that song. I remember in college reading, I think I was reading Keats, 
and there was something there was a Keats line and I thought that reminds me of a Chris Stamey line from that song. <laughs> I can't remember the line. Uh. <laughs> I always think of you with Keats ever since then. Um, I've never had any kind of English training. Um, I I just somehow skipped that, uh, except for a little bit in high school. Um, But I I think I, yeah, so unfortunately maybe I've, I know there's a a line, uh, when the world is too much with you, that I lifted from, was it Wordsworth? I mean, there are little, little bits here and there that people I know who are poets kind of come up and tap me on the shoulder. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't really have, you know, I, I have much more of a uh, musical training than I do any kind of lyrical or, or in English training. Um, well, I, I kind of fumble with that part. No, no, but even, even the, the, even this, the phrasing of that title of time and all she brings to mind sounds classical to me. Well, the personification of time right. as, as a woman, right? I right. Mean, Exactly. Exactly. Um, how were you a fairly um, disciplined kid? Because I, I I imagine you as one of those guys that had no problem practicing for hours. Hmm. Um, no, I I don't know. I think you know, I would I would start to practice and then I would start to fool around. I wouldn't. No, I don't think I actually relied on. Uh, early on, I relied on Mitch Easter a lot because he had gone to music school and he was a very he could do anything on guitar in high school. So we'd be making our, our recordings and, uh, I, I would get kind of lazy because I knew that whatever I would play, he would be able to play it for me better. Um, but yeah, I mean, I practiced there, there was a, in, in high school, you know, we liked the MC five and we liked the move and all this British stuff. Um, but there was also a prog rock thing going on then. Um, so we would play complicated music. Um, no, but I'm, I'm not, um, I, I'm not a naive musician, but I, I like it when things get kind of wild. I, I don't, um, I think I'm as rigorous as I should be. I like writing music. Do you find that you are quite disciplined now? Well, I try not to be, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, it's the follow your bliss stuff. It's easy if it's if there's joy. Um, you know, making this record was mainly about writing it, and writing it meant on paper and keeping it to one or two pages with you know uh, fairly repetitive. I mean, a lot of stuff is sixteen bar or thirty two bar. And, and I put the piece of paper down, and I'm done. And so the recording of it has been just fantastic. Um, it's just a, like a total gift or a total bonus to have these great singers and these great players take these little pieces of paper and maybe with a couple of words from me uh, <laughs> make it come to life, you know. Um, I, I, how can I say this better? Um, and I keep forgetting your recording, and <laughs> this is not going to be put in a more concise format, but... Um, you know, I think with, uh, I might've said this before, but with making records of my own, it's kind of like shooting a movie. And a lot of times I've done the movie, you know, cinematography of the music and, and the, uh, editing, meaning I've mixed it myself. And with this, it was more like I'm writing scripts and then capturing what these really great musicians do. And I was also thinking about, as I was reading through the booklet, um, which is awesome. And I was reading all the lyrics before I listened to the song. I mean, it's just, it's just a great 
it's a great Chris Stamey experience. I mean, it really is an immersive <laughs> and terrific cool. project. Um, but I was also thinking it made me think a little bit about, I mean, I know, um, you know, in terms of your, your as an homage to the songbook, but I was also thinking it was like an homage to friendship as well, because it's so collaborative. Yeah. I mean, uh, that, that could be true. Um, I mean, sadly there, there wasn't really a lot of, uh, you know, lifting flasks of beer or dining out on lobster. It was more, <laughs> let's meet in the studio and then the sessions are short and they're gone. So yeah, it, it was, I, I was celebrated by all my friends who helped with this. You're absolutely right. I think that there's there there tends to be from fans and I think from journalists as well there tends to be some myth making uh, going on about oh everyone from this scene must be pals you know or everyone who is in this movie together probably stays in touch um, right and, and a lot of times that's not true um, but it seems to me like you've maintained friendships over the last thirty forty years in music and 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 that makes me happy because it seems like it's hard to maintain friends in general, uh, let alone in, in a specific industry. Yeah, I mean, I would use different numbers. I would say uh, 50 years. That's scary. But, um, <laughs> yeah, for a long... Uh, I mean, you know, email helps. And then how how intimate is that, really? Um, sometimes in the modern world, um, there'll be, you know, 50 trivial emails with some of my friends and then actually no time sitting around with them um but um yeah i mean the vonnegut uh idea of a is it caress yeah of, you know you come into the world and there is a certain group of people you're connected to and and it uh, persists and vonnegut built on that idea you know after cat's cradle like 45 years later when he wrote a man without a country he was saying the problem with getting older is there's not enough people uh, it's important to have community. It's important to have people around you, and he right. felt, you know, he even felt there, there, there just wasn't enough people. So, um, it's it's important, obviously, to maintain friendships. And you know, like I, I, I see names like Scott Litt or Mitch Easter or Don Dixon, and those are guys that I was listening to when I was seventeen years old. And um, it, it's nice to know that that everyone's sort of in touch. You know, that you were talking. Yeah, about. I mean, I guess those three I do see a lot. Um, Actually, you know, Scott's in L.A., but I, I um, and I'm out in California um, enough that um, I make a point to hang out with him a little bit, and and Mitch and Don, of course, and uh, yeah. I never understood why Praying Mantis wasn't like a number one hit. That was such a great. Song. Well, we're giving it another shot. Don and Mitch and I are playing at the Americana Fest in uh, September. They're uh, doing a whole thing in Nashville to celebrate North Carolina music and. That we're gonna we're closing with praying mantis, so maybe it'll finally click with the population. My God, what a monster of a song! <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Um, in terms of, I, I was thinking about who you've worked with. Everyone from you know Whiskey Town to Stipe to uh, Mitch to Don. Have you? You seem like you you've always been paying attention too. Have you have you picked up stuff from even from a band like La Tigre? Have you picked up stuff from them just in terms of, you know, observation or just generally, uh, you know, or creative osmosis? Um, uh, Latigra was fantastic. To, I mean, I, le I did learn a whole lot uh, constantly. I mean, 
uh, Kathleen is inspired and uh, ruthless and very direct, and we had a great time on those records. Uh, and I'd actually worked on a, before the two Lutigred worked on a record called Julie Ruin oh, yeah. with her as well. And uh, yeah, uh, can I tell you things I learned from Kathleen? I, I don't know if I could right at the moment, but there are many. And and uh, yeah, I, uh, it was a blast. I mean, I, I like those records because they're full of ideas. Um, I mean, the, the moment where they they, uh, they have the heavy metal guy come over and play guitar, and then their laughter drowns him out. Who would have thought of that? But it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a really great moment, actually. Um, I remember there was a band that you that I, I believe was it the Mayflies. I think that you worked with them. Um, yeah, Matt McMichaels from the Mayflies sings a song on this new record. Oh, I didn't put that together. That's so cool. Because they didn't they have that song uh, down with Peter Green? Wasn't that on that Summertown record? Yeah, I did two records with them. Um, uh, you know, whatever the quote. The first one took a day. The second one took even longer. You know, kind of. It, the first one was pretty fast. Um, I'm trying to think if I just mixed Peter Green if I if I recorded it. I think I recorded it from scratch. Um, yeah, and that that's a song that Matt McMichaels sang lead on, and he wrote that one. There were a number of writers in that group, but that's uh, the Peter Green one is one of his. Again, a monster pop song. I, that's another one that should have broken through. Just a hell of a song. Well, I can't argue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. It's, it's just a hell of a song. Um, in terms of your songwriting, the do you find that you are um, that that you you can understand when not to chase a bad idea when maybe. In the old days, you might have chased an idea that turned into a song that didn't really work. Um, I always wonder about songwriting efficacy. Like, do, are you a better arbiter of of not going down corners that will that will not yield something? Can you tell that's going to happen? You know, you're always in love with the song. It's hard to see problems at the time. Um, I uh, what I what I hate is when you get a little idea and then you have then you have to come back to it in a week and make it happen. I, I try to get it at the time. So I'm trying to be uh, more cruel to be kind with the lyrics right at the time I'm first working on it. Um, because I think in the past, sometimes I'd have lines I just became fond of that I'd put in there because I just couldn't think of anything else that, that they seemed right, but actually they might be cliched or hard, hard to follow. Um, I don't know how how often I abandon songs. I mean, there are I guess there are a couple that um, I've had for a couple of years that I haven't been able to quite make click. But usually I try to get it really fast, and when I'm done, I like it. Right. <laughs> so no, then I'm not very discerning. I, I uh, but the the trick is to all it could be try to make it as good as you can right when you're first working on it. And don't put it off. And, you know, that can lead to a lot of missed telephone interviews and stuff. But um, <laughs> but you're in luck. <laughs> is, is the feeling... I uh, never do these phone things, you know. I, I don't know why. I just was too busy to say no to Carrie. I'm glad that you're such a... You're really on top of it and um, very perceptive and, and kind. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm, I keep thinking we're, you're just going to type this up, so I, I hope you can cut out some parts. I got to tell you, it's it's such a a relief not to be typing things up anymore. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're one of those guys I've always wanted to chat with. I, I've felt that I've I've uh, you know been listening to you for 30 years, and I've always been really curious about. Um, and again, like my my podcast is really about the idea of what's happening now. I mean, I read your book, and I, I loved your book. Oh, um, great. And I, and I love what, all the stuff you were saying. And I thought the challenge with Chris is to not is to get him to say things he hasn't said before. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just, with all of us, it's a challenge like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, just keep. If I'm repeating it, just maybe we need a code word. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. I just, I mean, it's such a such a wealth of stories. And I was wondering when you were writing the book, did you? Was there stuff that you you just thought, well, I won't put that in? But it just seems like it's such a rich, full tapestry that it's all in there. Um, that that must have been. No, a pretty... I think there was more. I mean, I think that cut off like at uh, 1992 or so. Yeah. Um, so there is there's some stuff that has happened since. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of uh, rock books that mentioned me very briefly in ways that. Um, I thought were wrong or misquoted, and I, I thought I, I didn't really have anything I, w- bad to say about folks, but I did want to avoid that uh, freedom to be nasty because I knew I would regret it, regret it later. Um, I don't know. That maybe that's not even true. I, I uh, it, it, it uh, <laughs> there was stuff I left out of the book, but. Um, it was keyed around particular songs for every chapter. The original manuscript was essentially uh, a songbook of those songs with a couple of paragraphs for each song. And in the end, um, the paragraphs grew and grew, and then the publisher said, nobody's going to buy this if it's got sheet music in in it. They'll they'll run screaming. So we took out the sheet music, and left all the paragraphs. It, it, it's a true composer wants sheet music in his, in the biography. Well, I was just having fun with notation. I mean, I hadn't done much notated music in since college, and all of a sudden, I was kind of learning it again. So that was again, it was trying to do stuff that's actually fun.
I had this idea that uh, there were people like me, whatever that means, who might read my book, and I would want to focus it toward being helpful to them if they were like me but hadn't gone through the same stuff. So I, I had a, a whole idea, and, and that's pompous, you know. I mean, who am I to say, <laughs> and help anybody, but uh, that, that was kind of in the back of my mind. I, I would say things about songwriting that I'd found useful, and maybe there'd be one person who would also find it useful. Do you find, Chris, that you are still learning in, in terms of the songwriting craft? Is it, is it? Oh, hell yeah. yeah. I mean, the last couple of years have been amazing in that regard. I've, I've learned so much. I knew a little bit about classical composition and a little bit about, and, and pretty much about a lot about uh, writing rock songs and um, pop songs. But uh, after I started writing some in what I thought of as a jazz style, I went back and started taking courses at the university and reading a lot and talking to people. And uh, yeah, it's a, a weird new world. I mean, um, learning a little bit about writing big band charts or, or uh, and also learning, I've written string arrangements for a long time for projects just in the way you would want to uh, make a mix come together. You know, if I was working on a record and um, it, it seemed to need a little bit of help and there was a budget, I would try to do it with strings because it's a very flexible um, option and one I know a little bit about. Um, but writing like the Nelson Riddle style, or I mean the other, the, the uh, Jobim uh, style a little bit, um, was totally different. And, and so I would have to study at night, and I would have to try a, a number of times, and I'd go and show it to other arrangers I knew um, in order to get to even this kind of low level of proficiency. Um, so, yeah, th this, I'd say the last five years have really been a blast. I mean, I've, I have I've learned a ton. Does it, does it make you go back and reverse engineer a little bit, knowing what you know now um, from the last five years, does it make you appreciate music in a way that you hadn't appreciated it before? Like, like maybe, you, you yes. know, it, so it has. Yeah, I mean, that, that started really when I, I was doing the more classical style orchestrations, and all of a sudden I was, you know, you fumble through a chart for an oboe or an English horn a couple of times, and then you can really pick them out of the orchestra, uh, and you, you learn uh, what their flavor is. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it start, so li after doing that, um, listening to an orchestra, like, you know, every, it's always like Fantasia ex now, except without the cartoon characters. I mean, it's so technicolor to me finally being able to hear a little more of what's going on or or if you go back and so you it's like you know cole porter you know i'm sure you always thought he was great but now if you go back and listen to him knowing what you know and how that stuff was done you can almost appreciate it on a whole other level yeah you know t i mean to be truthful i've been more trying to figure out like but powell voicings and some of the Thelonious monk things i haven't really gone back to cole porter like i i should have um I, I'm still kind of st stuck in my dream of Cole Porter from my childhood. <laughs> I mean, 
it seems to me like like you can get so clinical with this stuff, but it almost seems like there's never a moment where you get to go, okay, I got it now. I'm good. Like it just seems like it really is just artistically. It, it's it's sort of a, a joyful abyss. Well, yeah. So I mean, do you do you evolve as a creative artist? I don't know. Maybe it just changes. I mean, um, I do really like that song. It's all right. You mentioned, and and I don't know if I would make that better today. The one on that old record. Um, I think, I think maybe it's just different. I, I, I'm not saying better, I, but it is. is uh, um, it, it continually fascinating. Um, I mean, are there people who think that Picasso hit his peak with Les Saltabank? Um, you know, there are, and you know, I, I don't know. You got me. It's a tough one. Well. Let's take someone like Elvis Costello. I mean, I think Elvis Costello could have done, um, you know, 35 more imperial bedrooms um, very easily. But he seems like a guy who was doing what you're doing in terms of, you know, the evolution, um, you know, doing a record with Bacharach, doing a, a record with, uh, you know, like that Juliet Letters record. Um, yeah, no the Juliet said... Letters record I thought was a nice idea, but I did not think that. For me, that wasn't a success, but maybe I need to give it more of a shot. I, I, I think it's a miss for me too, but just in terms of ambition and, and trying to do something totally different, um, pretty cool. I, I, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I never heard Imperial Bedroom. I, I mean, Trust I knew well, and the, the, uh, the, the record with all the Motowny short songs on it uh, I knew well, but I, I don't really know Imperial Bedroom. Um, uh, so I, I, but in theory, I agree with you. I just, I just can't really speak to Elvis Costello. Yeah, he's. I, I only mean in the sense that he sort of seems like he's really challenged himself to do, you know, very different projects, and um, right. which is, you know, just in terms of of creative ambition, it's pretty pretty interesting. Um, you know, looking at the evolution. I think he's like McCartney, and they they both grew up in households, as I understand it, that. Uh, were full of standards and a richer harmonic language, and then both had a little bit of tunnel vision or, or streamlined their writing when they're playing with rock bands a lot, and then afterward let that bloom again. Um, I, I think maybe Costello had um, kind of a jazz standards background growing up, maybe. Uh, it seems like there were a few things, on, like B-sides on the early records, um, and all of a sudden, he's got to be the the guy with the funny glasses on the street that gets sung by CBS playing, um, you know, pseudo punk songs. Right. I mean, I'm saying that it may be more of a continuum than you're perceiving by putting his records in order. I see what you mean. Yeah, that. Yeah, you're you're probably right. Um, I think that the. I guess that you know, like I was watching. Uh, uh, you know, Rafa Nadal just won the French Open, and they were asking him, <clears throat> you know, what are you going to go do now after he won? And he said, I'm going to go work on my serve. And I thought, you don't have to work on anything. You're the best. But the <laughs> idea that, like, you, you do, you do still have to work at what you do. And I think you can't, you know, I mean, I know sometimes artists will mail it in, and you can you can almost tell. Um, but the idea that you remain disciplined, you remain somebody who doesn't feel that they've got it all figured out, 
Uh, and that might make you more open to try new things, I would imagine. I mean, my advice to songwriters is always uh, uh, be a, a, as much of a master of your craft as you can, because when you're in the middle of writing a song, there's no time for anything like that. So you want to have your tools all lined up and as many as you are appropriate and know how to use them, because when you're actually painting your painting, you just can't stop to look up how to go from a dominant seventh chord to a flat six or something. Do you find that, that when you go back and listen to a band like The Move, do you still feel the same thing you felt when you fell in love with it? My wife discovered The Move four or five years ago, and I heard it through her ears, ears a little bit, and it was really fun. But I wasn't able to learn the things from The Move twice, you know? Um, the exaggerated cartoony kind of engineering, the, um, the, the wink above the bombast, um, the... Just the whole uh, uh, way Roy Wood would do the um, constantly inventive little chord changes in those first pop songs. I, I think I'd, that's something I already had. So uh, I don't think they uh, were as much of a joy. How about a, a band like Television? Yeah, you know, I, I uh, have, by my request, have, have opened a bunch of shows for Television in the last several years. I, I have some arrangements for uh, String Trio, and, and um, I think Tom likes to have something that sounds kind of vaguely Baroque before they play, and uh, so um, I, I think of them now as a highly skilled, you know, quartet, and, it, and it's fantastic uh, to hear them. And what I've really enjoyed is being able to stand on stage and not hear it through the PA, but just actually hear um, all the nuances of what's really happening on stage. I mean, um, I, I'm way more into them than I ever were late Miles Davis or anything. I think that they're playing great these days. And when I played with Richard Lloyd in Central Park uh, a couple of years ago, um, he too, you know, it, the the curtain went up. Well, it wasn't actually a curtain, but he walked on stage and he totally brought it. He's still fantastic. What do you think it is about him as a player that makes him so special? He's remarkable. Well, I mean, I, I think his, maybe his attitudes toward life and he's uh, brave. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and I think that television was a good breeding ground for everybody around that band. I mean, it encouraged... Um, you taking it further. I always wonder, Chris, I, and I always think about, um, you know, like I told you, I still love Praying Mantis. I love that Peter Green song. I love, I love uh, Of Time and All She Brings to Mind. But there are certain Clash songs that I love that I don't love anymore. And I, and I, not that I have a problem with them, but they didn't last. And I, and I always wonder what makes something last. And I, and I know that that's an arbitrary question because, you know, it's different for the person. But you know, I, I wonder with your project and thinking about the idea of a songbook and what, you know, the American the American music canon um, and, the, and the timelessness of certain music, is that something that we can never apprehend, what makes something timeless? Is, is that totally arbitrary or individual, do you think? Well, let's see. I mean, the, the first thing, when you're talking about the clash, you're talking about moments in the studio or mixes. You know, you're talking about uh, kind of frozen... Uh, 
well, records, I mean, right. recordings. And when you're talking about the Great American Songbook or songs like that, you're talking about something that's very fluid. Um, the, you know, the key, the tempo, the phrasing might change radically from moment to moment. So it's more like a, a set of instructions uh, or, or rules for a game. Um, um, you know, th- there's so much nuance to an actual recording that, you know, when I hear Summer in the City by the, by uh, Love and Spoonful, I, it can dial me back to where I first heard it. And, and um, that, I don't know if that's as true of um, Moon River, you know. So I, I think it's apples and oranges a little bit there. Yeah, I, um, I, I know what you I mean. I mean, but, you know, people keep raving about Marquee Moon, you know, that, that recording. Right. Um, and people who had never heard it until recently, so, you know. For for me, um, I think there's some physics there. I, I think certain chords played in a certain order in tune will make you feel a certain way, you know? Um, and, and so that should be repeatable as long as it's people who are hearing them. I mean, whatever makes that work... Um, you know, you play a G7 chord and it resolves to a C major chord in a string quartet, and it's kind of going to do that thing every time, you know, and you right. line up those chord changes and it's kind of repeatable. Um, I don't know. Um, I only think about this stuff when I'm doing phone interviews, so I, I, <laughs> I don't have a good answer. I know. I mean, asking you a question of what makes a song last, is that's not a fair question. <laughs> it's a hard one. I mean, when I... And writing something, there there are times when, uh, well, sometimes it makes me cry, or or sometimes I can feel a kind of release, and I think, oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then often, but but I but it might be very simple, or it might be you know it, it's not, and then often that is repeatable. Um, uh, whatever, there's a song on this record, um, "Your Last Forever After." That's very very simple. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I played it kind of in the background and my daughter heard it and she really liked that one. And everybody who's heard it has really liked that song. Um, and Caitlin loved it right away. And there's another recording of it by Millie McGuire that's not on this record that it seems like it wants to work. And I'm not sure why. Um, maybe it's kind of vague. <laughs> maybe it's easy to read into it. <laughs> but that one, right at the, the moment I wrote it, I thought, well, that'll be a good one. Or, I have a song called Something Came Over Me that um, meanders a little bit and it isn't really verse-chorus so much, but at the time I thought, well, this is a good one, and it has persisted like that. So um, I don't know what it is, but I think with my own writing, every now and then, every ten songs or something, there there's a little light bulb that goes off, and there's something about this one that is going to work or is going to last, you know? Um there's a song called uh, It's Been a While, and uh, on the record, I think it's the second one. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I did it in an unusual way. I, I kind of thought, well, I have I want to write a song like this, and I kind of ignored that for a couple of days until it seemed like the right time to write it. But I, I feel really good about that one, too, in that same way. Um not quite as good about the last couple of lines, but otherwise I feel really good that it might uh, last a while. 
when you were you know right in that sort of say let's just take the 80s and you're around you know knowing people that you know like you know people like like don or mitch were you have you always been competitive with yourself or when you saw people around you who were insanely talented did that just make you better or did you compartmentalize and um i guess i'm trying to figure out if you're if you were a competitive guy that way it's so great to show something to someone you respect and have them say yeah that's pretty good and that's really a big incentive um and that was always the case playing with peter Holzapple. you know i i mean if i showed him a song and he was into it that was a good feeling um the competitiveness i i don't know about that um i mean if if mitch wrote something really great um yeah i would think well i can't slack off here but it wasn't like to grind him down or win the game um you know and i mean it was funny doing stuff with ryan adams when he was kind of first going uh into songs because you know, he would bring me a song and he would say, this is great. He would be really proud of it and not shy about it. And then he would also say, a go-between go track, this is really great. It was like a, a, a kind of a separate, you know, there was a, he would be a huge fan of anything if it was great, whether he wrote it or not. Mm. And the things he was a fan of, it was like there was a uh, split consciousness there. And... That was kind of an. Uh, it was a kind of at that point where I thought it was okay for me to be proud of my own songs, in that way. I think I learned that from him. And he. I was, don't know if that'll make sense to anybody. No, for sure. And, and and he was also, you know, he's the guy who probably came in and, and had like nine thousand songs. I mean, he was so just just so prolific. Uh, well, you know, he had some songs. Um, not all of them were finished. Um, it took him a while. When I was working with him, it took him a while to. He had a lot of songs that had the same. He had a first verse and then had to repeat it. He it took him a while to write a second verse. Um, I actually, he might argue with this, but uh, as I remember it, um, I told him one day that there was. Uh, I had read that if if Neil Young was working on a song, whenever that happened, he would drop everything and break. You know just sit there till he finished it and I said Ryan that's you know that's kind of what you do this is your job and then um he got really prolific after that and he got a lot of people mad at him for not showing up on the tour bus on time (laughs) we're gonna give you the assist on that one yeah I I mean I might deserve it you know (laughs) yeah but but he came in with a lot of great songs but it wasn't a hundred it was like 20 right right well, I mean, I, I I'm so excited by by this project, and and I wonder, uh, I was curious about the podcast because I listened to a couple, of, and I is that is the podcast still happening, or are you you're not doing that much anymore? What podcast? Well, I saw that there was like a um, a link to a podcast, like a like a was it NPR or was the? Oh no 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 that's different. Um, uh, I now know that the proper way to write a musical is you get the plot and you then write the songs to fit it. But I'd written a number of these songs and thought that, well, they're kind of talking to each other. They're these kind of characters. I can make this into a musical. So I reverse engineered a musical from these songs and 
uh, a radio musical and recorded it. Um, it's a pretty complicated project, and some of the songs on this record were used in that musical, although most of them were not written originally for it. So the podcast you're talking about is, I think, ten. It's the entire radio musical sliced up into ten pieces. Right. So I, you know, I wrote the script, which was absurd because I'd never written a script before, and um, recorded all the music and all the foley. Um, it was like something you'd do in eleventh grade for an assignment, but. It was broadcast nationally <laughs> and has been broadcast every year since uh, around the holidays. Yeah, I was curious about that. Well, Does that explain it? So it's yeah. not a podcast of me talking like this. No. Right. Uh, right. It's it's a, actually a radio drama that was broadcast, I think, an hour and 15 minutes long. And now the podcast version has chopped it up, but um, it's a little bit longer because there are some deleted scenes. And there's a great scene that isn't in there where, um, because I thought I, I would get sued horribly, but it, it, um, the composer of the musical is, uh, shares a loft with Leonard Bernstein, who is, and he's convinced that Leonard is listening at the door and stealing all his ideas. So the composer who's played by Django Haskins, um, comes up with this whole diatribe after a lot of vodka, uh, let's kill Lenny and, and does this whole song, which the conceit in the musical is that indeed Leonard is listening to, at the door and turns that melody into his song, I Feel Pretty. <laughs> and that that's the best song of the whole thing, but I can't ever use it because it I can't could not get permission from his estate to add a new lyric, which is detailing different ways to kill him. <laughs> Maybe I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'd love Maybe to we could put it in the podcast. <laughs> it's really good, though. I bet. No, that's really cool. Um, I uh, you know, like I said, you're one of those guys I've always wanted to talk to, and, and I know it's um, sometimes it's weird to intellectualize process, but um, it's, it's been a great chat. I know you got to go, but I I really appreciate you doing this and taking the time, and, and thanks for your patience with my silly questions. I, I really appreciate it. No, no, I was I was afraid it would be all about bad finger or something I, it's been charming and great to um be put on the spot by somebody as uh, erudite as yourself and I, I do really appreciate it He's a real sweet guy, that Chris Stamey. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation. We got into it, and, uh, and it was good. Uh, ChrisStamey.com is where you need to go to find out everything about Chris Stamey uh, that you'll need for your life from this point forward. And uh, there's a lot of work, and it's all great. Read the book. Buy the new album. There's, like I said, a lot of Stamey uh, for you to immerse yourself in, so go ahead and do the stamey immersive experience, okay? Uh, you can immerse yourself in me. Uh, there's not as much as Chris Stamey. There's a little bit. Uh, it's not exactly a rabbit hole. It's more of a shallow ditch. Uh, check it out. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go for that. Uh, our podcast, I'm happy to report, is available wherever you get podcasts. We're on Last FM, Stitcher, 
iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our newest uh, our newest place to be found is iHeartRadio. And we're really excited about that. Now, you can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. Or you can email me, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. All right, let's close things off with a new song from Chris Stamey and the Mod Rec Orchestra from the new songs for the 20th Century album. This is Manhattan Melody, That's My New York, featuring Django Haskins and Branford Marsalis. Enjoy it right here, and thank you as always for listening. I'll see you next time on Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I love the sound of the traffic, the rat tat of the train, a rhapsody that's pneumatic, so new and strange. I love the cobblestone clatter. The horse-drawn carriages sway The way the pigeons all scatter Second Avenue The pepper sauce is alarming Garçon table for two We'll skate at 30 Rock Center Then Christmas shopping for toys The Empire Diner for dinner
That's my New York That's my 